Hi, I'm Brandon Briscoe, and welcome to The Postscript. Hi, welcome to another episode of The Postscript, Living Faith Bible Institute's weekly podcast and YouTube series where we interview uh, pastors and missionaries and instructors from the Bible Institute on different topics that vary from theology to, to ministry life. Uh, we want to hear from them. We want to hear their wisdom. This week, uh, we are doing an episode with Pastor Alan Shelby, and we're going to be having a conversation about scholar, author, theologian, uh, N.T. Wright, and uh, about some of the, the discrepancies that we have uh, with his theological position and why maybe it undermines uh, what, what Scripture actually teach, teaches and, uh, and, and a proper maybe eschatological view of, of, who, uh, of what Christ teaches us in His Word. And so, Pastor Alan Shelby, welcome. Yes, good, good to be with you. Good to, to see you. Before we get started, I just want to introduce the audience to N.T. Wright and who he is, because I think it would be unfair for us to just go right into uh, to talking about all the, the, the areas in which we may disagree. I want to I present him as someone who's first and foremost definitely educated. Uh, N.T. Wright is, uh, for those who don't know, is an English New Testament scholar, uh, Pauline theologian, and Anglican bishop. And he was the Bishop of Durham for several years before he became the research professor of New Testament and early Christianity at St. Mary's College in the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, and has more recently uh, become the senior research fellow at Oxford University. So those are, those are quite the credentials as far as education goes. He's also written over 70 books and is uh, probably, I would say, the most prolific Christian scholar today, uh, and also one of the most influential, and uh, and has influenced everyone from Timothy Keller to Andy Stanley to to Rob Bell, and so he's had quite the influence. and And in fact, there might be a lot of things that we would agree on him uh, with him with him on. And one of those maybe would be his apologetic uh, for the uh, personage, the the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, we would probably maybe stand with him on his view of, of supersessionism. Uh, and he, he stands up against Reformed theology quite a bit uh, in, that, in that viewpoint. And he even defines himself as a traditionalist among Anglicans. So in, in that regard, uh, he's not maybe your typical Anglican in, so, in some ways. So with all of that said, with, with that resume, uh, with that level of influence, my question, the first question I want to ask is, so what's the deal with N.T. Wright? Why is it that, that maybe we struggle with his theology? What are some of the, the initial points that come in conflict with our view of Scripture, Pastor, if you don't mind? Right. So uh, N.T. Wright, obviously popular because of who he influences. Maybe in order to even explain his influence, I would, I would back up all the way to Francis Schaeffer, Mm-hmm. Now, not Lewis Sperry Schaefer, who was a dispensational theologian, who who is good, right? But Francis Schaefer from the seventies, the author. from the eighties and post Jesus movement, yeah, 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 yeah. Intellectual yeah. Christian inter- was it the seventies? I think so. anyway. Yeah, uh, Francis Schaefer, who I would recommend reading um, over N.T. Wright. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called How Should We Then Live? Mm-hmm. And even in that and in his other books, he pointed out his his paradigm, his viewpoint uh, would be that ideas start in philosophy, they proceed to the arts, then they get into our seminaries, and then they get down in grassroots into Christianity. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm that's a thumbnail sketch. I don't know that he ever worded it exactly that way, but to that effect, that that would be the process. Mm-hmm. Once you understand that, which I think reasonably is the way that things have happened within Christianity today, um, then you can see N.T. Wright as a product of postmodern thinking philosophically. So, so from philosophy, you've got postmodernism. But I would say there's almost even a rebound in a different way because here's N.T. Wright who interacts with 
and integrates, you know, contradicting some but using some. So so kind of, you know, he's he's origin. He's uh, he's bringing Greek thought into Christian areas. So he's mm-hmm. taken postmodernism, and he's putting it within his framework of Christianity. And then he's the one who influ- has influenced or would like to have influence on the arts from the standpoint even of some of our hymns hmm. and how he would say they should be changed uh, because of uh, the fact that he does not like the way they describe uh, substitutionary atonement. Oh. So instead, he would magnify the love of God instead of magnifying the cross on which he died. Hmm. So he suggests specific edits. Hmm, Didn't know that. But because of his influence, because of the patronage given him by modern evangelical uh, pastors, Mm -hmm. then— you know he's he's taken as the touchstone and the beginning point and the um, end of all knowledge, and so they you know they hearken back to him. Yeah, he did earn very positive uh, credentials um, within the skeptical wing of scholarship. Mm-hmm. There arose what was called the Jesus Seminar. Mm-hmm. So since they didn't like everything Jesus said. They contrived their ways right. to say, well, here's the gospel of Q. doesn't actually exist. We made this up. And Mark and others took from Q, and Q right. is really the only core things Jesus said, and everything else was added on later, yeah. and we're able to tell you what Jesus really said. So they, they attack the historical Jesus, and he, he pretty much answered all of that. Yeah, he, so, he refuted he refuted a lot of their arguments. Yes. Yeah. Secondly, there were others. I I don't know that I would. you know, I don't know how much they would even own Christianity per se. Marcus Borg and others, who de, who would deny the resurrection, mm-hmm. and so he had apologetically the arguments in proof of the resurrection, mm-hmm. and he could speak to them on their level. Right. So so that was a good thing. That was positive. So in those two areas, he he earned certain credentials. Also very early on, being a defender of substitutionary atonement, mm-hmm. which is kind of the evangelical doctrine. Right. I mean, it's either what the gospel is or it isn't. It's the right. kernel of uh, the gospel. Yeah. Uh, although, as far as I know, he always denied imputation. Mm-hmm. Christ imputing his righteousness to us. He denied that from the beginning, which doesn't make sense. But, you know, he, no, he has it, his it own viewpoint in defense it of it. It conflicts, and I've, I've noticed this about him, and maybe you can um, clarify, is that as it regards imputation as well as justification, it's very muddy. It's hard to understand what it is that he means and where he makes divisions in his understanding or his or, def- or in terms of defining what he means, um, and maybe you can even com- clarify some of that. Yes, while in the in the past he would have defended uh, substitutionary atonement, uh, I think that he does not do that today, and has certainly has had ample opportunity and many questions. Right, you know what? Well, do you really still believe this or not? And uh, he he does not offer his criticisms of the character caricature mm-hmm. of substitutionary atonement as an angry God punishing his son on our behalf is the only thing that he puts forward. Um, without being more explicit, there, I would say there are a number of reasons for that. Number one, I think N.T. Wright plays uh, three sides of any issue. Mm-hmm. Number two, I think that he does that because he knows that he gains his popularity by putting himself forth as being revolutionary. Mm-hmm. So this is a subversive idea of the cross. A sub, you know, Paul really gave us a subversive. It's sub- subversive yeah. against 
typically what's taught in Christendom today. And so he plays himself as... Yeah, and then on this, in the same breath, he'll say, but this is actually the way the first century church understood him to be at the same time. So he, he's laying a claim on his, his history, uh, at the same time saying this is a revolutionary thought. So having said that, yeah. and while I have, I've given him his props mm-hmm. as to... Defending the historical Jesus and yeah. uh, also the defending the the bodily resurrection. I would also say, on the other end, he is the the most prominent modern cult leader. Wow. Now, why do I say that? Because every cult group particularly since America became the land of the free and the home of the brave. Mm -hmm. And we were the great experiment in democracy. And we separated church and state. And by 1830, people discovered what that meant was you could invent your own religion, and they did, or they could be deceived into thinking they were going back they were peeling away the onion. Mm-hmm. They were the only ones going back. I mean, this great yeah. frontier mindset in our neo-Roman Americanism was also a philosophy brought into the church. And so in the 1830s, you had obvious deceivers like Joseph Smith, who created Mormonism mm-hmm. because he made it up. Right, And you had others like Alexander Campbell, who was Presbyterian, then he had a baby, and he said, you know, this isn't really right, baby sprinkling, I'm going to become a Baptist, and so then he was a Baptist. And then he read Acts 2.38 and decided that he would, you know, so out of him comes the Christian churches the and Christian movement. churches' disciples of yeah. Christ, that mm-hmm. which say you have to repent and be baptized— Right. And of course, they say, you know, your me baptizing you would be no good. You have to be baptized by them to really be a disciple, therefore really be saved. Mm-hmm. And if you really are saved, you will do that. So, uh, so okay, so all of them, what Herbert W. Armstrong, Worldwide Church of God, they all say the truth was lost early on. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the same thing that is said in textual criticism and manuscript evidence. The mm-hmm. truth was lost early on. We only started discovering it in the 1830s. Right. And uh, Upon the discovery of new texts that, that, that have been now correct. added to the, the canonical. So now yeah. N.T. Wright comes along and says, well, this, so we've got to go back to original. The original author's intent the original hearers and what they understood, and the original manuscripts, which fortunately for him do not exist, mm-hmm. I guess I'll say. Right. But uh, the problem is he becomes the arbiter, the one who is telling all the rest of us yeah. what the original author's intent was. Mm-hmm. So it's not the Holy Spirit. It's not comparing Scripture with Scripture. It is a man who has a PhD. Yeah. Now, um, lest lest we misunderstand, a PhD from Oxford, a PhD from Cambridge means you don't just know Hebrew and Greek, you know Latin, because you are acquainted with the patristics, which means a study of the early church fathers. Hmm. Well, the earliest church fathers were the Book of Acts. But that's not what they mean. Right. You know, what yeah. they mean is these church fathers that don't really start until Constantine. Right. Second, third century. Yeah. yeah. Who, who are totally pagan. I mean, you can't find a whole lot of gospel in the church yeah. fathers. You can't find a lot of being born again. You can't find a lot of Bible exegesis instead because they were open to these same ideas it's as the, origin it's the Talmud. was. It's like the Talmud of, of Christianity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and Mary's um, popular philosophy, Greek mm-hmm. or whatever, with what they can pull out of context in the scriptures, leave the Holy Spirit aside, Right. And let's let's make up our own system, which they did, 
N.T. Wright is a traditionalist in that sense that he is a very much a defender of the Anglican system. Mm-hmm. And he has contrived his ways how he can do that. And part of it is by saying, um, you know, I've got to, I have to take you back to what the original, what Paul originally right. meant and what they originally heard. I have to take you back to that. You can't get that on your own. You can get that in my books because I'm the subversive here. Right. I'm the revolutionary leading you into this new promised land that we didn't have before and was certainly lost ever since the Reformation. Yeah. And so with that, I mean, I've got a few of his books here in my hand. Um, this one is, this book's called Paul. It's just called Paul. Um, and he is the Pauline authority today. I mean, in terms of the way Christian scholarship considers him, um, he, you know, he's written many, many books about Paul. This one says what, this book is called What St. Paul Really Said. Uh, was Paul of Tarsus the real founder of Christianity? Um, his most famous book is New Perspectives on Paul, right? Uh, that one's the, the, it's called New Perspectives. And to your point, that has a very revolutionary title to it, doesn't it? The New Perspectives. But what he's advocating is is his perspective on the old perspectives uh, upon reading is that is what you find out is that, is that he's advocating for what he is saying is the original view of the church fathers. And, um, uh, first and second century perspectives on, on on what Paul said, and so, I mean, to your point, I think that uh, he is very much um, influencing people in a way that makes him the the ultimate authority on what the church should look like and should be. Uh, his voice is probably regarded as much or more than almost any other Christian influencer. Yes, within evangelicaldom today, mm-hmm. and um, you know, increasingly within Baptisthood now. So, okay, so this is one of his books. This is not really even a book for N.T. Wright. Right. This, this is like an hors d'oeuvre. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because he has a whole series of books. So here in his bibliography, his annotated bibliography, of course he write he lists himself. Mm-hmm. Um. And so uh, one of them, um, the New Testament and the people of God. Now, that's, that was his starting point, 1992. Mm-hmm. New Testament and the people of God. Jesus and the victory of God, 1996. So he has about six of these tomes that are of God and people of God mm-hmm. titles yes. that are... Um, Oh sure, this thing. yeah, they're huge yeah. books, and huge books, six hundred pages a piece, probably. Yeah, yeah. And anyone um, who's smart has read them. I mean, is the is the is the 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 idea um, in the blogosphere and in and behind pulpits today is that that if you want to have the insight in what God really meant, uh, you've read N. T. Wright's works and uh, and your and. You're familiar with well, them. Well, l- lest someone think I'm being uncharitable in, <laughs> okay. in my uncharity. Okay, go ahead. Here's, here's the type of attitude, the type of mindset we're dealing with. Here's, here's what uh, someone else uh, quoted. Wright is a brilliant scholar and theologian. Dispensationalist founders were nowhere close to right in their theological, philosophical, and hermeneutic depth, breadth, and sophistication. Right is brilliant and intellect of the first order. Not only does dispensationalism not have any founders in a league with Wright's caliber, it has produced no theologians who have done work of the same caliber, breadth, and depth as Wright. Wright has an impressive grasp of philosophy, intellectual history, hermeneutics, theology, and his own discipline. A guy like Wright has more academic authority than any dispensationalist ever had, and he deserves to he deserves to because of the scholarship he's done. Wright reads all the relevant biblical cognate and research languages and has mastered a significant amount of cultural, historical, and textual information, ranging from Jewish history to Greco-Roman culture to modern theology, philosophy, and culture. Schaefer, Lewis Berry Schaefer, mm-hmm studied music and did not finish his degree. Hmm. So that is that is the patronizing viewpoint that they 
have of you and I. Right. And, uh, you know, I would, uh, having, having read a little bit of right, uh, you know, I don't know that I would uh, agree exactly uh, with all that's said about him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he uh, he uh, is a reprise of Karl Barth. Yeah. So, remember Schaefer said, philosophy, and then into the arts and impacts the seminary theology and then, the yeah. and then gets down to the church mm-hmm. all, all and Karl Barth would see history in a typical Hegelian fashion Hegel mm-hmm. meaning thesis and antithesis merged together to produce a synthesis a, right. higher, truth. a higher truth yeah so so Karl Barth writes uh, 30 volumes of do- dogmatics, mm-hmm. which you could, if you wanted to be patronizing, you could say, oh, it's dense. No, he's verbose. Mm-hmm. Right is verbose, mm-hmm. as was Karl Barth. Right. So I'm not saying that there's not some density as well, mm-hmm. maybe dense in a— in a uh, bad fashion, but mostly verbose man. And and he is, a lot of the, the literature that he's produced is actually just a regurgitation of the same thoughts. It And he, and here's what, you know, I just don't like this. He, cro- he footnotes himself, yeah, even, even starting with his basic big tomes, mm-hmm. you know, and there's, and then there's a footnote like, well, re- to really understand this, yeah, you need to go back to my previous volume of six hundred pages and right. read it first, which clearly works because I've purchased three of his books and read them. So, you know, it does lead you down a rabbit trail of purchasing. You know, you you frequent Amazon once once you get into that uh, labyrinth. Um, here's you know, so back to this idea of dispensationalism and his attack against dispensational theology, because I really want us to land there and discuss. Um, you know, his argument versus ours. Um, Here's one of the things that he says. Uh, This uncertainty, this is in his book uh, called Scripture and the Authority of God, which is is basically uh, his way of not calling uh, Scripture the authority, uh, Scripture and the authority of God, uh, displacing, displacing authority away from the Scriptures and putting it onto the concept, the more abstract concept of God and Jesus, which leaves room for him to interpret. Uh, but but that's aside. In his book, Scripture and the Authority of God, he says, this uncertainty in turn, of course, begets a new and anxious eagerness for certainty. Hence, the appeal of fundamentalism, which in today's world is not so much a return to a pre-modern worldview, but pre- precisely to one form of modernism reading the Bible within the grid of quasi or pseudoscientific quest for objective truth. And what he's making reference to there is a dispensationalist perspective, of course. So um, why all the hostility on his part? And why does it, why does it require a rebuttal from us? Ah. So since anyone who's not walking in the spirit can be an agent of the devil. Mm. And the reason I would say that he, that N.T. Wright is the premier cult leader in evangelicaldom today is not just because he says, look, it was lost early on. I've rediscovered it. Listen to me. Mm-hmm. But also, um, you know that you're involved with doctrines of demons when, when two things. Number one, demons cannot do exegesis. Mm-hmm. So they read in or they say all sorts of things that weren't in the text to begin with because they can't do exegesis. But secondly, and this this one primarily is N.T. Wright's area, when they redefine biblical terms, when they take a biblical word out of the Bible itself mm-hmm. and do not use the Bible to define that term according to how God is using it, but now they and and his whole works and system of theology is based on redefining key terms like 
justification so that they can be made to mean the same boundary markers for Christians as the Anglican mm. church. And, and to that point, within this book, Scripture and the Authority of God, his very words are that Christian terms like atonement uh, are, like, are like suitcases and that they uh, are full of many, many different defining terms. And they're great to, for the sake of synthesis, but they don't do the real terms justice. What does this really mean? It's like a suitcase. And, uh, and so what he suggests is that, uh, that, that Bible believers, philosophers, scholars do the work of unpacking in order to really define the terms that we've done the Bible and injustice by, by a, a presuming upon words. So he suggests that everybody, as many voices as possible, contribute to defining what these things really mean through scholarship. And, and your point, um, I think, is made here is that he's not advocating to let the Bible produce its own definitions. He's, he's suggesting that more scholarship is necessary uh, in order to, to really define these terms. So what N.T. Wright says is the Bible is not authoritative. The Bible is not the authority. Only God is. Mm -hmm. That sounds very spiritual. Yeah. The Bible's not the authority. Only God is. And that's why I say he's a major cult leader, because if you're going to take that position— then you can read anything into things that you want, and you can take terms lifted out of the Bible. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard the psychological term projection, mm -hmm. where someone who is guilty projects on you what, sure. what I'm really guilty yeah. of. So that I could be guilty for the feel guilty about so the exact same So N.T. Wright has a bunch of baggage. He has dirty laundry. I mean, more than that, he's got stuff that, that he soiled. Mm. and put right back in the suitcase. Mm. And that is what he's unpacking for you. He's not unpacking terms from the Bible itself. He's unpacking them from, among other places, the patristics, mm -hmm. the early church fathers who didn't know any better either. Man. And, and to that point, I mean, he's regarded in, in you know, in terms of his historical understanding, he's, but he's, he says the following thing. Christian discipleship, so he's got opinions about discipleship, by the way. Christian discipleship involves two things, faith on, on one hand and history on the other. So in other words, he doesn't, and, and by history, he means the Bible among other things, right? Like, yes, Scripture. It's the same Catholic approach. You've mm -hmm. got to allow the church to interpret the Bible for you. Okay, so then that leads me to ask you, what do we do about it when, when there is influencers like this um, that are seeking directly to undermine a dispensational perspective on God's Word? I mean, he's attacking our very hermeneutic, and, and he has so much to say about the rapture. I mean, he despises the rapture more than—I more than, mean, you read his writing, and he's saying all these things, but then when he talks about the rapture, he talks about it with great spite— in his voice, the tone begins to change. And there is, he truly does uh, um, hate the way that we approach God's word. And so um, what should we do in terms of combating these forms of heresy? Well, so we do the same things that Paul commended the Bereans for. Mm -hmm. we, set, we set aside the man, set aside his degrees, set aside... Uh, what he is famous for and what he has done well. Mm -hmm. And we set a, aside those things and we examine critically the statements he's making, the way he's taking things, where he's driving, and what their results are. And we compare it to the Scripture. Mm -hmm. And then as good Bereans, we, we search ourselves and we see whether or not those things are so according to the Word of God. And so another reason I would say N.T. Wright is the primary chief cult leader in evangelicaldom today, not only is his doctrine of demons shown because 
They can't do exegesis. They redefine terms, but also they mince at words. They mince at words. Hmm. So let me let me give you a specific example. Okay, like with what you're talking about. Uh, even if I set aside the obvious hypocrisy on the front end of it, because N.T. Wright is death on dispensationalism. And yet he talks about the Bible being a story in five acts. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. And it's like, well, what the what? It's his form of dispensationalism. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, okay, whatever. Mm-hmm. But if I set aside, you know, I'm thinking critically now about what he's presenting and what he's saying. If I just set aside the fact that he's a hypocrite, mm-hmm. uh, let, me, let me give a specific example. So if you talk to one of those Mormons that come and knock on your door and you try and convince them that Jesus is actually God the Son, mm-hmm. and that's what Son of God means, yeah, and uh, you take them to where Doubting Thomas, Jesus appears to Doubting Thomas, and Thomas says, and you can read yeah. it there, yeah. uh, you know, my Lord and my God. Yeah. Well, if you are talking with a sophisticated Mormon, which they all are that come to, the, to your door, they've had a burning in the bosom, meaning they've had a, a demonic apparition or encounter of their own. Mm-hmm. So they've already, they already have a reply formulated in advance to that. I mean, you know, obviously he looked at, at Jesus and said, my Lord, comma, looked up into right. heaven and said, my God. Sure. It is that type of mincing of words that N.T. Wright does. Mm-hmm. So I had I had pulled up on my iPad. He he did a he did a podcast. Somebody did a podcast of him. Right. He's I and think the, he's done many. podcasts. The title had to do with you know denying the rapture. Like the I think what it said was the rapture is never mentioned in the Bible. Certainly okay. he says that right. rapture is never mentioned in the Bible. And it's sure. like huh, you know First First Thessalonians four. We will be caught up together with him in the clouds. And it's like, how do you get away with saying it is never mentioned in the Bible? Mm-hmm. But then if I if I were to give you the three sides that he plays mm-hmm. in his mincing of words, he draws a distinction between the coming of Christ— the coming of the Son of Man and the return of the Son of Man. Mm. So this linguistic trapeze uh, somersault that he's doing makes the returning of the Son of Man in A.D. 70 one thing. Mm-hmm. And, the re- and the returning of the Son of Man actually already happened. And it's not Jesus coming on clouds to this earth from heaven, that would never happen. Not Nobody at that time believed that. Hmm. But the returning of the Son of Man was this thing from Daniel chapter 7, where Jesus enters the throne room. The returning of the Son of Man was the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, because hmm. that's when Jesus entered the throne room. That was the returning of the Son of Man. It's already happened. Okay. So how is that different from Seventh-day Adventists and Ellen G. White, who said there was some certain, certain thing that happened in 1844? Well, you know, originally Miller, they were called Millerites, and I, I, I guess he had too much Miller light or something. He, he, he said, Jesus coming back in 1844, they didn't, it didn't happen. So Ellen G. White took that doctrine and said, well, that was a, a certain thing related to propitiation, and, and it happened in 1844. Oh, oh, so it's like, okay. So, so that's, you know, Jesus, the, the Son of Man, has, has already come. Now, obviously, the Son of Man's going to return. I mean, the Bible, you know, the New Testament talks about that. So he right. can't deny that. Right. But he does no exegesis of it, no exposition of it. No, that's not, a th- that's not anything we should be looking for. Yeah. So does that, so in that regard, is he an amillennialist? Like, 
so he's uh, assuming that the kingdom is present, the millennial reign is present and ongoing. Is that his assumption? Well, I, so again, he, I can't. It's he, hard for me to extrapolate well, from what so he's saying. Not only do things like the millennium in Revelation chapter 20, not only is it allegorical, but his word is metaphor because the Bible is story to him. Mm -hmm. So it's not doctrine per se, truth. It's not teaching a content of doctrine. It is a story. But not only is Revelation 20, the, the millennium, a metaphor, but all these things Jesus says in Matthew 24, other places that he himself says, Mark, Mark 13, about his second coming, sure. that, Luke 21, that is metaphor. Yeah. He never meant it literally. Anything, he would, anything that regards judgment. Well, that or anything that regards Jesus coming back in clouds mm-hmm. and us meeting him in the air or Jesus coming back in clouds at all. Mm-hmm. That's not going to happen. So all of the Revelation 19 would have been fulfilled at A.D. 70. And that was not the judgment of God on the temple Mm -hmm. and his people. That was the vindication of Jesus. So that is when the Son of Man came because he entered the throne room. Now, can you see how convoluted this yeah, is? Yeah. Can you see how much assumption and inference there is? Can you? And yet he will say he has to go back to the Exodus, and everything in the rest of the Bible becomes a reverberation of this idea yeah. of the Exodus. And we are the true Israel. Right. So everything is read in that light, and everything is a metaphor of that, mm-hmm. because Israel does not exist. Literal Israel does not exist. So in that sense, not only a cult leader, but anti-Semitic. I'm not accusing him of anti-Semitism right. in terms of arguing uh, certain bad things against the Jews today, other than the thing that would say God has nothing for them. They mean nothing to him. Right. And only the church as constructed in his Anglican movement with the boundary markers God set. So that was the whole idea of the new perspective on Paul, mm-hmm. uh, which was a Swedish theologian that uh, uh, I don't know how uh, lit the bomb and, uh, and blew that one off. Right. Um, so um, uh, I forget his name Kate, right now. Kotlin or something oh, like uh, that. It starts with a K. Yeah. So he, uh, yeah, and that was, goes back to the 70s. Mm-hmm. And in some theological... Um, some theological conference that ended up being put published in a book or a journal talked about a new perspective on Paul that said that Martin Luther read Paul through these very anti-Catholic, anti-Roman Catholic eyes, and that really it had nothing to do with that. And, you know, even Judaism was not this quid pro quo, you know, you've got to do this and then God will give you eternal life. It was not, it was nothing like that. But the things they had to do, like circumcision, was simply a boundary marker of the elect. So in N.T. Wright's Anglican theology, which he subtly makes the cult religion of evangelicaldom, In his Anglican theology, baptism is the same as circumcision. Circumcision in the Old Testament was the boundary marker of those who are elect. Mm -hmm. Well, obviously, if you're Israel, you're the elect. The boundary marker of who's included and who's excluded is circumcision. By the same token, baptism is the boundary marker of God's elect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's ma- he makes a parallel between the circumcision and baptism in that regard. And basically what that does is it supports this idea of infant baptism uh, and baptism through the, the way the Anglican church perceives it. And be. all that is is a justification of Anglican theology mm-hmm. under the guise of a new, not a new perspective of Paul, but a new attack on him. Mm. So this is a new attack on the Apostle Paul. This time saying, Martin Luther got it wrong. 
and our definition of justification, which we inherited from uh, the the Reformation, right. is not valid. Hmm. Let me go back to redefine justification as something that existed in a law court, not as God declaring you righteous, mm-hmm. but something that existed here in a law court that so they totally redefine biblical terms based upon what he legitimately reads out of the early church fathers mm-hmm. who weren't straight to begin with, right? but he's an expert in them. And so, yes, you can take, he says history, the Roman Catholics say the church, meaning those early church fathers and church history as they developed it in seven sacra- sacraments. But he'll say history, but meaning going back Really, not to the early Earth's earliest believers, but going back to those, go back prior to the Reformation to the church fathers of Constantine's age mm-hmm. and after. Mm-hmm. And let's, that is the consensus of the church, of Christianity, that we must now, this is the way they originally understood it, yeah. and we need to get back to that. Which is incredibly dangerous. Uh, knowing that those guys don't even agree with each other. I mean, their writings don't agree, but you've got a guy like Justin Martyr or Cyprian or Clement of Alexandria or Origen who are so divisive uh, and so um, counter to scriptural teaching that they, like you said, they have the ability to prop up the sacraments. I mean, they have the ability to prop up the Catholic Church. They're views are aberrant to begin with, and yet here he is going back and referencing them for his own particular brand of of Christianity. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. And you've got Augustine, who starts off a premillennialist and and then denies millennialism. Yeah. So it's just, you know, it it is, uh, you know, once I understood, oh, I see why he's doing this. This is simply... How come nobody's picked up on this? Yeah. All this is is a justification of his own church, the Anglican church and their theology, which has both evangelical and Catholic wings. Mm-hmm. And the uh, person who's Archbishop of Canterbury, who rules all the bishops, is alternately an evangelical type bishop and a Catholic type bishop, and they alternate between the two. And that is the Elizabethan um, um, solution, mm-hmm. uh, the the via media, the middle way. Yeah. And that's the way that they take. And it, you know, it's come down to them through history and it must be the best one. And he's, you know, he is a cult leader in the way he does the same thing that cult leaders have all, always done in going back, saying they lost the idea early on. Mm-hmm. In redefining terms and uh, and saying now we've come back to it, you know I'm the one who is subversive mm. of the traditional evangelical view. Mm-hmm. Let's get back to the real traditional biblical view, meaning these ancient church fathers and how they viewed it. Mm-hmm. And yes, he cherry picked. Uh, there's not a coherent system there, so he takes what matches yeah. his, and which is how everyone treats the early church yeah, fathers. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, but so get back to this this concept of how do we defend against it? So, I mean, here here's all the reasons in which he despises our perspective, um, and I will say that because of his influence, as well as other influencers, dispensationalism is is waning in some regard uh, in the church. What do we do uh, to get to a place where uh, we can defend? And I, and I kind of feel like I know where you're going to take this, but but what do we do in order to be the change that's necessary when there are so many heresies abounding in our world today? Right. So when you know we we have the reason we are in the mess that we are in in terms of independent fundamental Baptists or whatever you want to call fundamentalism or uh, we're not, we're not true biblicists. Mm -hmm. And the two areas that we have failed in historically walking in the spirit and being good Bereans. Mm -hmm. 
So number one, you know, we don't walk in the Spirit. I mentioned that before. But secondly, um, we don't have our Bible rightly divided. We disdain doctrine. It it takes thought. It takes, you know what, you can't just read your Bible. You've yeah. got to study it. That's yeah. what the Bereans did. They didn't just read their Bible. They compared what Paul was saying against it. That meant in a day before the printing press and concordances and things like that, they they had to do some heavy research mm-hmm. to get into it. They didn't leave it as the letter because then they supported Paul and they uh, walked in the Spirit with him. Mm-hmm. But really, in essence, that's what discipleship is all about. Those are the two wings of discipleship. I'm going to be a good Berean. I'm going to walk in the Spirit. If I do not do both, I am not uh, fulfilling my life as a disciple. Right. I am not really a disciple of the. I have not. I've got to do both things. I've got to take up my cross and follow. Mm-hmm. I have to give up my own ideas. I have to submit to biblical authority. Uh, I can't supersede biblical authority by saying, well, only God is the authority. Mm-hmm. Because then you are really the only authority. Because right. there's nothing in writing that judges you. Mm-hmm. So you can use your reasoning to judge whatever is in writing. And that is what N.T. Wright does. And the the inoculation, the vaccine against this virus that has infected evangelical Christianity, gospel preaching, born-again Christianity. The inoculation in the vaccine is to be a good Berean, walk in the Spirit. So we've got to get back to discipleship, to biblical teaching that is doctrinal teaching and Mm -hmm. doctrinally sound and doctrinally straight and doctrinally correct and compare Scripture with Scripture and rightly divides the Bible. And those are a heritage that came to us through the Philadelphian church age, mm-hmm. that that is what has by and large been lost. But that would have been where Earth's earliest believers were at, because that's where Paul was at. Mm-hmm. That's what he taught. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I, I would say in, in closing, is there anything else that we should know, we should be, be aware of? I mean, certainly N.T. Wright is not the only voice. Uh, there are many. There's many voices uh, that are speaking out against uh, a literal view of God's word, or even that God's word itself uh, can be trusted as inspired. There are many voices uh, that speak against that perspective. Uh, in closing, what what would do you have anything else that you would want to add to what we've already talked about? Well, I, you know, I would probably encourage people to step back. 10 paces mm-hmm. and look at what what is happening particularly happening in America and we have been building our cathedrals to our silver-tongued orators mm-hmm. mega churches but many of those mega church some of those mega church pastors um believe in the story metaphor view of NT Wright mm mm-hmm. mhm so the uh, you, some of the mention, names you mentioned, Rob, the Rob Bells, the Andy Stanleys, the uh, Francis Chans now, apparently, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe some others, um, started with the theology of N.T. Wright and his view of story, metaphor, no biblical authority, certainly death on dispensationalism, um, no blessed hope of the second coming of Christ, first for us in the rapture, and then a visible, a visible literal one where they see him coming in clouds. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a denial of all of that. And that is has swept through evangelicaldom as well. And, uh, you know, it was always there on the reform side because they didn't have their prophecy straight anyway or their view of the Bible dispensationally. Mm -hmm. And so those two things kind of reinforce each other. And that's why then even with reform theology, we'd think, well, that's at least conservative. But many of them are not cessationists, so it's kind of charismatic because they can't tell you what gifts – for today right. and not for today. And if one of some of the ones they say are for today, how does that mesh with sola scriptura? Mm-hmm. 
Because any word of prophecy or speaking in tongues is as is much the word of God. God's word, right. So it, it just once you once you give away biblical authority, then you don't know where you're going. And mm. uh, you can pick any one of those streams and they it's all the same sewer. Yeah. And it's a shame. Uh, so uh, we I think we have to be good Bereans, walk in the spirit, and do all those things that come out of that. Man. Well, thank you for the warning and thank you for the education. We appreciate that. And um, and we'll come back together and, and we'll talk again, if that's okay with you. Yeah, praise the Lord. Awesome. Thanks. We want to thank you for joining us again for another episode of The Postscript. Hopefully this was educational for you. Hopefully you got a new perspective. Um, just learning maybe for the first time who N.T. Wright is, but beyond that, uh, why we should be defenders of the Word of God and what it actually says, why we should be living in the Spirit and, uh, and even to be wise and, and understand that there is a spirit of Antichrist that, uh, that seeks to deceive. And, and so uh, we hope that today was encouraging for you and that you grew. If you've got more questions about LFBI and our, our Living Faith Bible Institute, you can go to lfbi.org, check out our program, uh, check out our vision and, uh, and our, our vision statement and our purpose for the Bible school. Learn about us. And if you've got questions, feel free to reach out Again, thank you for joining us and have a wonderful day.